The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to turn now in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1 to continue on in our Ephesians series on Sunday evenings. We're revisiting, and it's taken us a, a while. We're not only in the fifth part of this series, but we're, you'll notice Paul has a long introduction into this letter. And what we find is a very triune, Trinitarian introduction in which we have considered how we have been chosen by the Father, we have been purchased by the Son, and tonight we'll focus on how we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit seals the deal, how he closes, how he secures us. And uh, notice that even in our text, not until verse 13 is the Holy Spirit even mentioned, but the Spirit plays an essential role in the divine economy as Through the Spirit, we lay claim to the inheritance that is ours in Christ as the well-loved children of God. The Spirit is our marker, our identity marker and the seal that secures our passageway through the valley that is this life as we prepare for eternal glory. Please follow as I begin reading in verse 11. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Father, we thank you for choosing us, not because we were fit or beautiful or attractive in any way, shape, or form, but because you loved us. Lord Jesus, thank you for accomplishing our redemption by your costly sacrifice. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you secure us, you seal us, and make us fit for heaven. Bless us as we explore this portion of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. About eight years ago, which was about a year after my family first moved to Lancaster, I found myself driving down New Holland Pike, Route 23, in our Chevy Venture minivan, and I noticed the check engine light going on. And it would go on and go off and go on and go off. And this pattern went on the days that I would drive it, and I began to notice that the needle, the temperature gauge needle would go up and then go down 
and go up and then go down. And at the time, I didn't really know a lot about cars or engine coolant systems. And so I, but as I saw this phenomena with the light and the needle, I began to think, hmm, perhaps I need to get this checked out. So I did. I went to a mechanic, and after a thorough investigation, he determined that we had a head gasket leak. And so I got an education about what a head gasket is. A head gasket is a non-metallic material that that performs a a seal between the two main halves of your engine block. And it it traps and keeps your engine coolant because if your gasket begins to wear and tear and engine coolant leaks out, it can burn out your engine. So to the tune of about $1,200, we had our car fixed and humming along nicely. And uh, as it, it happens to be, our Chevy Ventures are notorious for having gasket leaks because of the kind of coolant that eats away at it. So a few years later, we had to have an intake gasket repaired to the tune of about seven or $800, I think. And, uh, and then... Uh, and, th- and this was before they had come out with lifetime guarantee gaskets. Well, we sold the car in early 2011 and uh, didn't get much for the car. It was over 200,000 miles. And the mechanic that bought it from me, he took it off of our hands. And when we met up three weeks later to sign the papers and transfer the title, he informed me that once again he had had to replace another head gasket. We live in a world where things leak. Car engines, swimming pools, water heaters, refrigerators, faucets, and freezers leak. And if I'm honest with you, I realize I leak. My heart leaks. And, and like that, that poor engine system in my van, unlike the, the seal that tends to work pretty good in my car engine and only needs to be replaced every once in a while, I have a heart that needs to be corrected a lot. Because the pressures of life, the strains and the fears and the anxieties and the things that arouse around me cause my heart to twist and turn away from the seal and the grip of the Holy Spirit that holds me together. As we come to this passage of Scripture, Paul reminds you and I that we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And although we need to be repaired and fixed over and over again, the truth is we have already been sealed permanently. He refers to the fact that we have been sealed by God's grace in eternity past. We have been sealed in the present, and we have been sealed for the future. We see this in our opening verse, actually in verses 11 and 12, that God has sealed us in his very thoughts and in his plans from eternity past. Verses 11 and 12 teach us that our sealing has come 
has been, actually been predestined by God and serves for the praise of God's glory. Now, there are, is a debate among scholars in verse 11 in reference to the inheritance. Is this our inheritance that we receive, or does this mean that we are God's inheritance? And scholars go back and forth, and I, I lean a little bit towards the latter view that Paul perhaps is making reference to the fact that Old Testament Israel was referred to as God's inheritance. And so now that the gospel is breaking out into non-Jewish communities among the Gentiles, Paul is communicating that not only is Israel God's inheritance, everybody, the Gentiles included, are a part of God's inheritance. And he speaks more to this effect in chapter 2 of the letter to the Ephesians. But either way we look at it, we, we know that both are true. That, that you and I who are in Christ, we are God's inheritance, and we have an inheritance that's been secured for us from eternity past. God predestined us in love. He, he chose us before the dawn of time, not based upon our beauty, not based upon our merit or how good we are or the fact that we would choose him or respond to him in no way, shape, or form because of anything we have done. God set his affections upon us for the praise of his glorious grace, to make us a people that belong to him and to lavish upon us his inheritance, his gifts, which ultimately is the gift of himself, to be with him for all eternity. Before Stacy and I were married, we had what is called a long-distance relationship. We actually lived over a thousand miles away from each other, her living in Wisconsin and I for a time in Nashville, t- Nashville Tennessee, and then later on in Houston, Texas. And Stacy would be upon my, my thoughts frequently, as we would anticipate our next visit, and we would take these long trips and be with each other uh, over a course of days and long weekends. And then when we got engaged, it only intensified the anticipation of us being together so that when we would be together and no longer have to depart from one another, getting on an airplane or in a car to travel away from one another. God is the lover of our souls. It is God who initiates and pursues us. It is God who has had a longing from eternity past to be with us. And we have a Savior who so delights to be with us and for us to be with him that he paid the ultimate sacrifice, that he purchased our redemption at the cost of his own life laid down for us. And it is Christ our Savior who looks forward to the glorious day when we will be with him forever. God has secured for us an inheritance. And he has sealed us by the Holy Spirit that we might be his and we might share in the rights as the well-loved children of God, that, that we might have this inheritance. Now, a wealthy man 
as he plans out and thinks about his estate and thinks about how he wants to distribute his wealth and goods after his departure from this life, he puts a lot of thought into it. And he might seek counsel. He might call in a lawyer, a financial planner, maybe an accountant to help him work through the various legal, financial, and tax implications of his estate and what he will leave behind, perhaps, for his children or organizations or charities. And no matter how well he plans, he can't perfectly control how all those resources will be allocated. But notice in verse 11 that it says that God works everything. God works out all things according to the counsel of his own will. God doesn't need a counselor. There's no one wiser than God, so he consults himself as he plans out his estate and his inheritance. One of the best pieces of counsel I ever received came in the middle of my junior year of college when I was wrestling over my future direction. I was still on a pre- med school route in college, but I was wrestling over the call to ministry, and I went to a conference, and I met with the main speaker, and he graciously listened to me ramble on about all my struggles and trials, and at a point towards the end of the conversation, he, with love and compassion, looked me in the eye and said, Tucker, stop taking yourself so seriously. He spoke truth and love into my condition, all worked up, all tied up in knots about my future, and reminded me to rest in my father's care, to simply follow his leading and direction in my life, knowing that my God is a God who has planned everything out, that he is working out all things according to his perfect will. And that counsel guided me into a very important year in which I made two of the biggest decisions I ever made the decision to pursue vocational ministry, and the decision on whom I would marry. And so that counsel served me well as as I've been blessed in both regards, learning not to take myself too seriously, but entrust myself into a sovereign and gracious God. Our text tells us, it reminds us that God has chosen us, that we have been predestined And the the, the idea of predestination is not this scary, cold, Calvinistic term. In fact, it's a term of love and affection. It's that God set his heart upon us, and it benefits us not only in our salvation, but how we live our, our lives following the Lord. This reminder of God's sovereignty also helps us to have perspective on life. We live in uncertain times. There is no political pundit who can determine what will happen in this fall's presidential and congressional elections. There is no economist who is smart enough to figure out what will happen with the American economy, let alone solve and anticipate the world debt crisis. But we have a God who knows. And we have a God who is working out all things according to the purpose of his will, even the rising and falling of nations and expanding his kingdom 
for our good and his glory. I've been reminded recently by various thinkers in the world of missions, people who know history and the Bible much better than I do, suggesting that, that we perhaps are on the dawn of a very exciting era. In fact, the, the world mission scene seems very ripe, ripe for harvest. In fact, there are many things today that are similar to the first century in which we saw Christianity and the gospel explode. The world is largely connected by one human language, English. We are largely connected by technology and commerce in one common monetary system. We are connected by communication and transportation technologies unparalleled in the history of the world. May I suggest to you that we simply trust God and be faithful and follow where he leads us and be available and use our wealth and resources and opportunities to equip and help others to do the work of ministry that God is already doing all around us here in Lancaster and in our partnerships around the world. We have been sealed by the Spirit from eternity past for the praise of God's glory. One of our neighbors in our new neighborhood that we moved into a few months ago uh, informed us that their oldest child, their son, was leaving to go to college. And my wife and I have observed that these parents seem a bit beside themselves, not quite sure what to do with themselves. In fact, the father showed up on our doorstep the other night and had a good long chat with Stacy about these things. And, and Stacy just sympathetically shared what she'd heard from others, that oftentimes when the oldest child leaves for college, it can be one of the hardest transitions a parent will ever experience. Parents exist to raise up children, to send them into the world to be God's image bearers, to represent God and to testify to his goodness. We need to be reminded why we exist. Our culture says that we exist to gratify our desires, to pursue self-fulfillment, that our marriages basically serve to please us, to meet all of our needs. That work is merely to make, is, is intended just to make as much money as possible, to play hard, and have a comfortable retirement. These are dangerous messages that our culture bombards us with every day, and they leave us empty, unsatisfied, stuck in a man-centered view of things, and consumed with vain glory. Like you, perhaps, I enjoyed watching the Olympics a few weeks ago, and one of the things I tried to pay attention to were the interviews. How a reporter would interview a champion or a competitor, And it became very clear to me a real difference between those athletes who competed merely for self, who were competing just to compete, versus those athletes like Gabby Douglas, who won the all-around women's gymnastics championship, who competed for the glory of God. When one competes and performs before an audience of one, 
the pressure's off. And the good news of the gospel says that we do not have to perform for God. Rather, ours is the pleasure and honor to honor him with our time and our gifts and our opportunities where he would lead us. You see, when we are consumed with our own glory, our hearts leak. In our former house that we sold a few months ago, uh, for years I had a water leak problem in my basement. It wasn't a bad leak, but it was just kind of an irritating leak. And the problem was where the water main came in from the street, there was a PVC pipe around that copper pipe And what would happen every spring with the snow melt and every fall with the fall rains, the ground would be saturated and water would build up and the pressure would push water up through that PVC pipe and out into my basement. And I would reseal that opening with silicone. And I did the same thing over and over and it never worked. It didn't hold it back. And so I sought counsel with some wiser men here in the church and they said, no, you need a stronger seal. And so we went after it with expanding foam. And I went after it with a polyurethane plumbing agent. And that thing was dry as a bone from the time I sealed it until we sold it. Our hearts are leaky. Our heart, the seals around our hearts get broken and twisted. The strains and pressures of life press them out of shape. We are overwhelmed by the floodwaters of life. And we fear, and we distress. The stress and strains of marriage, family, and ministry can overwhelm me. And Jesus says that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Words of anger and resentment and self-pity are all signs that one's heart is not properly sealed by grace. And when our hearts are empty having leaked out God's grace, we fill that void with all kinds of deceitful desires. But it's the powerful work of God's Spirit that infuses that grace within us to press out the lesser desires. Friends, you and I need to be reminded that God has loved you and I from eternity past. That you cannot forfeit His grace. No matter how many times you fail Him, that he has placed a permanent seal around your heart by the Holy Spirit. And when we embrace this truth, it revitalizes us. It sets us free to respond with humility, with grace and compassion, to turn away harshness and respond with a gentle tongue. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit in the past. We've also been sealed... In the present, when we heard and believed the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. Now, not anyone can hear and simply believe the gospel. Only people whose ears and hearts have been opened by the Holy Spirit are able to receive it. Jesus was disturbed one night by a disturbed Nicodemus who was perplexed over Jesus' ministry. And Jesus brilliantly got the message through Nicodemus' thick skull to help him understand that he needed to be born again. You see, we are naturally born blind and deaf to God's grace. We need new life 
to be able to hear and understand. Now, the Old Testament promised this. It promises the new covenant. It promises that God will give a new heart, a take away the heart of stone or replace it with a heart of flesh. It promises and anticipates an age of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes we call this work of the Spirit effectual calling or regeneration. We understand that it takes the work of the Spirit to precede our ability to respond. That only once the Spirit is alive and working in us are we able to respond to hear the message of salvation and respond in faith and repentance. We don't seal ourselves. We can't tighten and fix that seal. It requires the work of God to do the work in us to enable us to live by the Spirit. A few weeks ago, I was doing yard work, and as I was using my weed eater to do edging and weed eating, I heard a popping noise, and everything went dead. And because I've experienced this before, I knew what the problem was, and sure enough, I looked at my extension cord, and there was a wear spot, and had worn down to the wires, and the wires had crossed, causing a short circuit, and cutting off the weed eater from the electrical outlet. So I had to go to my toolbox and get my electrical tape and I had to reseal the electric, the, the wires in order to feed the current. The Holy Spirit seals us to receive the grace of God so that we can operate and function and follow him the way we were designed to serve. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is also like the mark of an ancient king's signet ring. A king would use his ring to seal a document, to, to put his imprint upon a, a wax, a, a, a melted wax that would go over the edge of a document and seal it. And it would be an irrevocable order from the king. You'll remember the story of Esther where the only way she could stop the wicked plot of Haman, who wanted to destroy the Jews, Esther had to win the favor of the king and ask him to give her his signet ring to proclaim a new order. No longer an order of judgment, but an order of liberty to set the Israelites free and empower them to defend themselves against their enemies. Likewise, you and I who were under judgment, you and I who were under wrath, have been given a new order. We have been given a new declaration. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit with a promise of deliverance and liberty and hope and freedom from the judgment to come. The seal of the Holy Spirit is also like another ring. It's like an engagement ring that a man gives to a woman, a pledge, a promise unto marriage. And so the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a pledge, as a deposit, as a declaration that God will fulfill his promise on that great and awesome day of redemption. We live in a world of many promises but very few guarantees. There are products that promise 
guaranteed freshness. Services, service providers entice us with the pledge, satisfaction guaranteed. But God is the only one who can fulfill such a promise. God is the only one who can satisfy us, who can offer us a full guarantee. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. The promise of God to fully complete our redemption. We were saved and sealed in eternity past. We have been sealed in the present when we heard and believed the gospel message. And we have the confidence that we will be sealed unto everlasting life. A guaranteed inheritance in the presence of God. In fact, another interpretation, translation of this idea of guarantee is a down payment. Now, when my wife and I bought our new home, because we didn't have enough cash, we had to take out a mortgage. And we put down a down payment. Now, though we, so, so though we live in the house, we really don't own it. It's actually owned by a bank, I think, in Florida. So, we make a down payment to the bank as a guarantee, a promise that we will continue to pay until it's paid off. And the house becomes fully ours when the debt is gone for good. Now, God is not loaning to us. And God is not our debtor. He does not owe you and I anything. And yet God has made a down payment. He has given us the Holy Spirit who lives and resides in us. Our our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. You have such value to God that he wants to take up residence inside of you and seal you and secure you for the day of redemption. Now, God owns us. He owns us completely, and yet there's still a battle going on. My flesh fighting with the Spirit, fighting for control, and yet God is working in us, enabling us by the Spirit to yield control so that he has full and gracious mastery over every part of our lives. In fact, God is restoring us into the very image of his Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, while we are still in the body, we are a work in progress. You see, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit points to future glory. And for the second time here in verse, uh, verse 14, it we're reminded that we have been sealed for the praise of his glory. So the same Holy Spirit who began a good work in us will carry on unto completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And his intent to make us, to renew us in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Next week, I intend to do some home improvement projects in our house, installing some new flooring in our kitchen and elsewhere with the help of a good friend. Now, our house is a wonderful house, and yet my wife and I want to improve its value and its beauty by installing some new materials. Friend, 
the work that is needed in our house is nothing. Is nothing and pales in comparison to the work that needs to be done in my life. You know, we're going to be busy all week doing this renovation work, and it's a simple, humble reminder to me that God is at work in my life and in your life to renovate, to remake, to restore the beauty and the value and the infinite worth that you and I are in His precious sight. See, what I love about God is that God is the perfect handyman. God knows how to fix anything. And, and God has the skill and the knowledge and the patience to bring out every work to its perfect completion. God does not grow tired and weary of fixing us. I need repair all the time. As I admitted, my heart leaks, and God's got to reseal it. It leaks again, and God has to reseal it. God is constantly on the call to come and fix up my life. And the nice thing about God is that, the glorious thing about God is he doesn't do a patch job. He's not in and out and just merely putting a surface repair. God is in for the full renovation. We have a God who fixes the right way. And so when my seal is loose or it grows weak, God tightens it. He strengthens it. And it's a reminder here that you and I have the promised Holy Spirit. That it's a reminder that God has set his affections upon us. That he has sealed us from eternity past. He has sealed you in the here and now. That the Holy Spirit is with you now. And will remain with you and stay with you and carry you on to completion because you are sealed. You are secure in God's grace, and you will be ready. God will prepare you for that great and glorious day of redemption when we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are doing a good work in each and every one of us, And that by your grace, we are secured and sealed for eternity by the power of your Spirit. Remind us of this. Carry us and sustain us and help us, O Lord, to yield more and more to the work of your Spirit in our lives. Bless us and lead us as we begin a new week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.